0: Hello and welcome to Dialogue and Debates with Cumberland Lodge. Um, my name is John Lotherington and I'm a trustee at Cumberland Lodge and also the director of the 21st Century Trust. I'm delighted to be chairing this second webinar of our four-part uh, mini-series on issues of race and justice in, in policing, education, the culture sector and wider society. The first webinar of this series took place yesterday with, with guests, Dector Dias, the human rights lawyer, Dr. Soraya Gibraj, uh, from the University of Kent, and Karen Wilson, uh, Assistant Chief Constable for Lancashire, um, uh, sorry, Lincolnshire. The panelists were discussing recommendations from the Cumberland Lodge report on race in Britain, inequality, identities, and belonging, and how the Black Lives Matter movement has captured widespread support and triggered a broader debate on structural inequalities and racial discrimination. Uh, In case you missed it, and I would recommend uh, listening to it, it's a a, a splendid discussion, very important ideas. The recording is available on the Read, Watch, Listen page uh, on our website. Today, we'll draw on the findings and recommendations of another Cumberland Lodge report, difficult histories and positive identities in the light of recent events associated with the Black Lives Matter movement, including, of course, the removal of statues and the changing of street or school names Uh, and other issues. Um, And I should say we have our own difficult history uh, issue here at Cumberland Lodge. Um, Our name comes from the Duke of Cumberland, uh, the son of King George II, um, who led uh, the forces that defeated the Jacobite Rebellion at the Battle of Culloden in 1746. And he uh, earned the nickname from his enemies of Butcher Cumberland because of the extraordinary repression of the Highlanders that took place um, uh, after that battle. Um, this is one of the things we have been thinking about a great deal, um, and what we aim to do is to provide interpretation and context to explain why he's such a controversial figure. But this is, of course, a journey for us, how we difficult, deal with our difficult history. And no doubt, various of the issues that we're going to be discussing will have resonances um, uh, with our uh, issues that we're raising today. And I'd like to give a very warm welcome uh, to our panellists who are going to be talking today. Um, we have Dr. Christina Fryer, who is lecturer in Black British History at Goldsmiths, University of London. Dr. Tristram Hunt, who is the director of the Victoria and Albert Museum. Uh, zaiba Patel, who is a history teacher. And Olivia Wyatt, who is a researcher at the Young Historians Project. Now, to those watching this morning, we do very much hope you'll get involved and submit any questions you might have. We'd like to put to our guests as, as we go forward. Um, if you'd like to do that through Zoom, please use the Q&A function uh, rather than the chat function, the Q&A, um, or you could tweet at Cumberland Lodge or comment on our Facebook live stream. Now for the questions, first of all I'd like to turn to Christina and um, one of the things that was emphasized in the Cumberland Lodge report um, was that there needs to be more a systematic approach, there needs to be better coordination between the current strands uh, of uh, initiatives addressing uh, difficult histories. Do you think this is one of those political moments, a political opening, where the Black Lives Matter movement uh, will lead to that greater cross-sector working and collaborative responses? Is the political energy really going to drive things forward, Christina?
1: I mean, I think there is political energy at this particular moment, but that political energy is also coming. You know, it's also clashing with a pandemic. Um, and you know, this, in part, this is why we're all doing this on a webinar. Um, we're all mostly confined to our homes, although of course uh, lockdown is easing. So it's, it's, it's a very tricky moment because I think there is a lot of political energy at the same time that you know, a lot of the sectors that we're talking about are fighting for their existence. Um, so I work in the university sector and universities are, are, are struggling very much at the moment. Um, and, you know, I know the same is true for museums uh, and for other critical sectors uh, in, in the arts as well. So it's, a, it's an incredibly tricky moment trying to figure out how we're going to make this work. And one of the things that I worry about, um, and I see, I can see it, you know, sort of happening in the university sector, is that actually we have a lot of energy over the summer. Um, but we're currently, you know, also quite drained as we're trying to make this pivot into some sort of face-to-face online teaching, blend, you know, blended situation. And a, I think there can be a real danger that we think of, um, of matters of, of, of race, uh, the sort of British history and an accurate telling of British history, that we think of those matters as less important because of the disaster that we're in at the moment. And I think that's a, that's a flawed approach. Um, and you see this, you know, the, the, the COVID, uh, COVID-19 affects uh, BME communities uh, to a higher degree, um, as we're seeing. Um, also that, you know, issues of class, issues of poverty that are going to be exacerbated by this uh, by this pandemic are also going to be more uh, going to be more harshly felt uh, by by Black communities uh, in particular, as well as in BME communities. So I think it's, it's there is a danger that we think in this sort of emergency mode about the pandemic without realizing that these two things come to actually come together in this moment. We can't put Uh, issues of race on the back burner just to focus on the pandemic. But that is a concern.
0: Yes, thanks very much. We'll be coming back, I think, uh, to that broad question of how momentum is maintained uh, and how, despite the very difficult circumstances, this political energy, which is built up in a sort of pressure cooker mode, can actually be um, pushed into really constructive channels. But but I'd like to turn to Tristram uh, next um, and uh, just ask what might change in museums, as a result of Black Lives Matter. Obviously, um, your own work at the VA uh, has involved uh, engagement with Black communities and so forth, but, but what's coming next as we present difficult histories uh, and articulate community identities in, in
2: museums? Well, I think there's real energy um, around um, the, the challenges which have been identified by the Black Lives Matter movement um, and I think everything Christina said about having two months of great economic challenge and we in the museum sector are facing terrifying the challenge of Rio re- uh, but nonetheless that, that can't be an excuse for not focusing the the, the issues um, which we've seen kind of um, develop over the last few months. For me, this is a force around real energy across the museum sector uh, around this. This is about bringing in more diverse to uh, our collect reflect modern Britain um, in multiple ways so that people feel that the national museums belong to them. Um, and we've got work to do in terms of our curatorial uh, base and our curatorial team, um, and we're making progress, but we've got much further to go. We've got to have the kind of in terms of bias training in terms of clamping down on microaggressions, in terms of having an anti-organizing with as wide a wider range of all.
0: Tristan, I'm my... uh, terribly sorry to interrupt, but you're, you're, you're um, breaking up quite a lot. Uh, could I suggest, unless there's any other ideas from our tech team, if you, if you go off camera to save bandwidth?
2: Okay. I'll, I'll save some bandwidth, sorry. <laughs> um, um, I, what was I going to say? I was going to say that the um, that there's a particular responsibility for a museum like the v because we have um, a, a quite clear colonial and imperial legacy um, and we have collections um, which have histories whether from um, Ethiopia or whether from Ghana or whether from South Asia which have histories connected to the apparatus of race and racism so we need to think particularly carefully about how we approach those histories but also explore them in a contemporary uh, manner today so a huge amount of work to do for which there's real energy across the the entire world
0: okay thank you uh, very much uh Chistram, and uh, fingers crossed that your uh, uh, microphone and uh, so on will recover um for the later debate um, Zyber, um Moving to you, Um, the um, uh, Difficult Histories and Positive Identities report Camden Lodge produced um, advocates fresh approaches to encouraging young people to think critically about the past and engage in conversation about sometimes uncomfortable truths. Um, How do you think the school curriculum now needs to change? What what do you think are the difficult conversations that we should be engaging in uh, with, with young people?
3: So um, I think that we need to think about this in a range of different ways. I think we need to think about how we empower teachers to have difficult conversations but also how we're empowering students in these difficult conversations. So this kind of issue of representation um, is the initial one. And I think it's something that people are talking about a lot, that in the history curriculum, there needs to be representation, um, diversity uh, in what we're teaching to ensure that students have a global perspective. I think that's that's the first thing. Um, And I think lots of schools and lots of teachers, lots of teacher education um, groups are putting that together and ensuring curriculum is diverse. But then you get to the question of, well, how do you have these difficult conversations? Um, and so it's not just about what we teach in our curriculum; it's also about how we go about teaching it. Um, and we need to think about how uh, we empower our students in having these conversations. I think a lot of what uh, the Black Lives Matter movement has brought up is this issue of uh, a lack of kind of empowerment um, and a centre of authority that it isn't with. Uh, the oppressed, that the central authority isn't with the people. And so we've got to think about what we can do in our classrooms to de-centre that authority, I think. And that's how you have um, difficult conversations. Um, uh, Bell Hooks says really beautifully that um, the, his, the classroom is the site of uh, kind of, of opportunity um, and we can kind of use our history classrooms to decenter authority. Um, where are we opening up spaces in our curriculum for our students to have a voice? Um, you know, are we, if we kind of have lots of representation, which is wonderful, um, we've got to make sure that we're not just kind of continuing with methods that don't give students a voice. We're not just kind of giving them lots of information that they absorb and regurgitate. We need them to be able to do stuff with that information. That's when education becomes empowering, that students have a voice um, and they're given kind of spaces to discuss um, and to debate. And this surrounds looking looking at things like kind of community histories, it's really important. But we're decentering the authority, you know, students are the experts in their communities. Where can we find their voices? Um, Where can we have conversations about historical interpretations? Where can we talk about significance? You know, all of these big things that give our students a voice and the ability to feel empowered. And then on the other hand, we also need to empower teachers to be able to have these difficult conversations. And I think that comes from um, an approach where we give teachers the opportunity to be trained um, in having these kinds of difficult conversations. Um, And this is really difficult at the minute, given that schools are so cash strapped. Um, There was an open letter in the Times recently by Dr. Jason Todd, um, and he called on uh, the government. It was signed by people like David Ovisoga, Um, Lots and lots of kind of famous people um, calling on the government to create a a program um, where teachers could be trained on teaching things like empire. Um, And what we can look to here is look at how we teach the Holocaust in this country. So the Holocaust is the only compulsory thing that we have to teach at PSH3. And there is a wonderful, um, the Institute of Education has got uh, this wonderful kind of training program and um, that teaches teachers teach us how to do justice to teaching the Holocaust. And I think we need to have something similar for Empire so that we can empower teachers to feel comfortable with having these kinds of discussions. So It requires a governmental level, I think, rolling out this program that is properly funded to empower teachers and in the meantime to empower their students.
0: Um, Just a supplementary there. um, uh, How far does the national curriculum uh, and the sort of present structure of exams as well, how far does that support what you want to do? How far does it constrain it? What changes might be needed there?
3: So in terms of the national curriculum, um, there's not the only, like I said, the only statutory thing is the Holocaust. There is the option of teaching the British Empire and things like that at stage three. But the problem is we don't know. I mean I guess lots of t- schools are teaching it but we don't know what the quality of that teaching is and so that's a constraint we need to be able to find out and the thing that the Holocaust education thing did was to found, find out about what teachers know and understand about the Holocaust and so that helped them to build a proper program and that's what we need to do with teaching controversial histories like empire migration um, and then when it comes to exams you do have the opportunity to teach um, African kingdoms or some exam boards that some exam boards don't have very much diversity the issue is a very small number of schools take up those options because there isn't the kind of the the resources out there to support teachers and um, the thing is is that of course it's going to be much easier for teachers to continue with the stuff that they've been teaching for a really long time because the resources are out there and we just don't have the opportunity to, to be trained um, and so yeah that's why I think it's really important that it this comes at a governmental level to invest and to make sure that these things were done justice
0: and taught properly. Thank you very much. Um, uh, Olivia, um, we already heard from Christina uh, about some of the issues now in maintaining momentum and of course we are in this extraordinary uh, period imposed upon us by, by Covid-19, but what would you like to see uh, and what do you hope to see in terms of uh, the momentum recovering um, and making sure that some of the issues that have been debated and earth? continue to be scrutinised and changes continues to be driven forward. What's your perhaps midterm view beyond COVID as it were uh, for what should be happening?
4: Well, I think it's also really important to make sure that we're using this momentum to highlight other issues, which mainly mainstream discussions aren't really focusing on. So there's been a lot of discussion on including these histories within the curriculum, but not as much about who was going to be writing these histories, who was going to be researching these histories. And that is another problem in itself, which is kind of neglected within these discussions of institutional racism. So quite often we will go to academic historians and the research they have produced to kind of get information about these histories, which can then be used in the curriculum. When you're turning to an academic workforce, which is 96.1% white, is very difficult to get the opinions of black and Asian people and to hear those voices being represented in that literature. So I think that's what, especially something we're doing at the Young Historians Project is kind of drawing attention to that problem whilst also creating some of the black historians who can go into that workforce and add that bit of diversity which is clearly needed because we can't have an honest discussion about histories of empire migration colonialism without having some of the people who are still being affected by those histories today. Uh, So that's something which we're also trying to draw attention to at the moment.
0: Um, Something else that that seems to be the case at the moment is that uh, history uh, has really come alive. Um, There is a sense that it really matters. Um, It's been in danger at various times in recent generations of being rather sidelined in terms of the curriculum, in terms of attention. Uh, and now there seems to be a real focus uh, on it. Do you, do you sense that's really growing uh, among young people or am I just uh, 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 just thinking about what's going on today is the word? Do you think that's going to be sustained that great interest in history? Um,
4: yeah I think that is going to be sustained and I think it has also always been there at least for a while and I think now is just a moment where we can kind of see it being expressed but history is always something which people have been interested in particularly at a young age And it seems that the topics which their people are therefore taught in the classroom is kind of what seems to put them off, especially with black people. So at a time, history was the third most unpopular degree among black students. And that's because they would go into a GCSE classroom or classroom before then see the histories that were being taught and thought this isn't really for me I can't see myself being represented in this but people have still always had a passion for history and that's why you see so many organizations outside of universities um, which have existed so for example Black British history has become kind of a more mainstream discipline in recent years but for decades there have been organizations outside of universities producing this research because we noticed going into institutions that we weren't really seeing the history we wanted to be taught. So I think young people have always been interested in history, it's just not the histories which were being presented in the classroom and hopefully the Black Lives Matter movement can include some of those histories.
3: Thank you very
0: much. There's so many ways in which has been uh, sort of illuminated by the issues surrounding statues, that a lot of history in the past has been ignored, basically walked, almost literally walked past. Um, And now it's coming into focus. And one of the things that uh, everybody is, of course, energized at the moment is about how history is represented in in our public uh, spaces and how we should go forward in terms of uh, developing those public spaces, thinking about what's there, thinking what might need to be changed. Now, Neil McGregor um, has recently proposed that there should be a series of citizens conventions uh, around the country up and down the country, looking at at public spaces, looking at memorials and asking, what should we do with these memorials? And indeed, how should we create new memorials, not just consider uh, what's been left over from past ages? Um, So I'd just like to ask um, perhaps uh, uh, Zyber first and then Tristram to to comment uh, on Neil McGregor's suggestion. Would this be something you would welcome? Do you think it would be something that could take uh, the debate forward? Zyber first.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think this issue of local history is incredibly important. I think students being able to tell the history of their communities and looking around them. I mean, I teach in Oxford um, and obviously, with all the things that are going on around Rhodes Must Fall, I suddenly kind of sat back and thought, wow, when have I actually had a conversation with my kids um, about Rhodes Must Fall? This has been going on for such a long time. Um, and so, what I've decided to do is to get in contact with a group called Uncomfortable Oxford, and they give tours of Oxford that don't just focus on kind of the beautiful, dreamy spires of Oxford, they also look at the uncomfortable elements to it, looking at the history, legacies of imperialism, um, colonialism, slavery, that kind of thing. And, and so i guess there's this real sense that the kids need to understand their communities and also i think it's very empowering for them to be able to have conversations about well this is my city and what's significant here and what do i want to be memorialized in my in my locality and so yeah i think it's incredibly important and it would be really valuable for students to be able to tell community histories and to know more about community to increase that sense of belonging and, and also that sense of empowerment um and kind of uh sort of the idea that they are the authority and knowledge as well.
0: Thank you very much. And something just uh, with regards to the uh, inclusion, very much of school students and, and schools as and institutions in such a debate, uh, it seems to me something that, that could be generated by that is a better intergenerational debate, because there are intergenerational issues in the way that people of my generation were brought up in a very different atmosphere politically, and there are all sorts of ideas that were laid down in the past that are now being open to scrutiny, and there are new ideas that equally need critical uh, scrutiny coming from, from uh, younger generations. So that intergenerational uh, approach seems to need to be something that comes through with this. Um, Tristram, uh, what do you think about Neil McGregor's idea, and uh, how can we uh, move forward with engagement, community engagement more generally? Hoping you're you're back.
2: Yes, <laughs> I know. Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, I think I think Neil's idea is is great um and and actually where where you have local engagement and support and i remember this in stoke-on-trent when i was a member of parliament there you know building a a consensus for a statue just of arnold bennett actually outside the potteries museum uh was an enormously energizing process for the local community Think about who they wanted to memorialize and why. Um, we do this less now and we should understand that, you know, we are not like the Victorians um, and the, um, uh, we're not like the Victorians and the Edwardians. Um, actually the, the kind of interventions we, we like in the public realm are much more artistic, they're, 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 um, they're, they're much more subtle than the kind of great men and women uh, codifications of the of past if we want to revive that spirit um then that's interesting uh, in and of itself um but we we also have to understand that and in a sense we should be open to the politics of this that an in- intervention that some parts of the community regard as obvious and necessary will not necessarily be accepted by all parts of the community as obvious and necessary and so having a sense of the, the willingness to engage in a debate about that seems to me enormously important and one of the things I think we've lost um, in, in recent years is, is that ability to have a, a kind of civil discourse around competing ideas um, where, where you have to give and take um, and the imposition of a, a public statue or memorial is a, is, a, is a big act and one should be aware of that.
0: Thank you. Uh, Could I just ask you, while while you're with us, Christopher, could I I just ask uh, a a follow up question uh, building on what Zyber was uh, talking about with school teaching? Because you were, of course, Shadow Secretary of State for Education. um, And it's a difficult time when uh, changes to the national curriculum were were being uh, discussed. Um, Just wondering how far the issues we're debating now really were live at that time. Uh, and how far, as well, any ideas you think would be would be different in the political debate now? Would we be able to have a more creative debate uh, around the national curriculum now?
2: Well, I, I mean, I, I, mean, the the problem, as one of your contributors has pointed out, that you can have as many debates about the national curriculum as you like, but if all academies don't have to have any regard to the national curriculum, um, it doesn't make that much of a of an impact. Um, that said, most uh, um, schools do do have regard to it my issue always with the curriculum when you look at key stage three for example 11 to 14 year olds the history of um the the mogul empire in south asia the history of the british empire in south asia is is highlighted as as an area for um uh study the history of the atlantic slave trade is an area highlighted for study but teachers never got the time and the space to do this the The average thirteen year old got one hour of history teaching per week, so my issue was never so much with the the nature of the curriculum of course there 's room for improvement. It was actually the space given to history within the curriculum and and making the case to head teachers and deputy head teachers um, that Um, our our, our great history teachers in schools needed more space for these complex issues and I think um, it's absolutely right to begin those conversations locally and telling a story of Oxford for example um, which is both global and local immediately throws up these, these, these kind of issues so I I would obsess, in a sense, less about the nature of the curriculum, which we all enjoy debating, and focus on the nuts and bolts of ensuring, you know, two hours a week, two and a half hours a week, rather than just one hour. Great.
0: Thank you very much. And uh, now turning to uh, Christina and and Olivia. Um, uh, During our uh, webinar yesterday, uh, Dexter Dias, the human rights lawyer, uh, made perhaps a very important point uh, when he was asking why, um, in his view, Things have moved backwards uh, in terms of uh, racial stereotypes, racist attitudes, the expression of racist thinking. And he was saying this is, in his view, again, uh, something related to our contemporary historical conditions. He dated it uh, to issues around, for instance, uh, the changes to the economy, the crash in 2008, the precarity people feel in, in their careers, um, de-industrialization, the insecurity of communities which have been fed into certain populist strands which can lead back towards um, racism. So I just wanted to ask Christina and Olivia uh, as to whether you think uh, some of the history that we should be studying uh, would not simply be that the history of the more distant past and these vital issues around slavery, but these should be paired perhaps with issues of contemporary history. Uh, to get a, a better understanding uh, of where we are in terms of uh, the recent past, not just the deep past, Christina.
1: Well, I, you know, I, I think that there, that that there's a lot to that, um, but in particular, I, I, I don't see. Um, a robust study of, uh, of you know, the period of, of slavery uh, and emancipation, for example, which is the areas uh, that are the focus of my own research, I don't see those as necessarily um, distinct enterprises from, uh, from a more contemporary history. Um, the legacies of slavery and emancipation are still very much with us. Um, and the ideas in particular, I think, um, you know, white supremacist ideas, emerged out of that period and are sort of still lurking around in you know pretty much all western societies available to be picked up particularly at moments as you've said uh, at, at moments of economic distress um and so there is you know a, a lot of the sort of racist ideas that we're still struggling with emerged from that period if we act as though um, the the slavery period is not still resonant uh, in in contemporary society, and that we don't really need to know what happened there. Then we can't really even diagnose uh, what's what's going on in in the present. So I see these things as very much uh, connected.
4: And um, yeah, I have to agree with Christina. I think they are very much connected, and you also see the continuation of because colonialism continued great right into the twenty. 20- 20th century so it isn't as though you can say it's something which happened a long time ago when you still have colonies today in some aspects so it's very much still our present as well and I think it's also about how you discuss those modern histories so one of the projects we're doing at the Young Historians Project is looking at African women in British healthcare and quite often when people would analyze African experiences it would be just either in the colony or maybe in the 19th century. And it certainly wouldn't be in relation to the British Health Service, because that is something which maybe feels a bit more home to Britons, and they don't really imagine African women in that health service. So I think it's important, like Christina said, to be aware of the continuing legacy of slavery and colonialism, but also be aware that it continued into the 20th century, and that we can still see it in our health service, which was at the time, and had a lot of people coming from the colonies to work in it. So it isn't really separate from our present, because especially as it's still a tradition for a lot of African women to come over to train in Britain, and that is obviously a direct result of colonialism.
0: Thank you. Uh, perhaps we can uh, stay with you for one of the the questions that's uh, that's come in uh, from from one of those viewing uh, the webinar. Um, which is a question about how uh, so much Eurocentric history has been written by, as it were, established authors, established uh, historians. And uh, the suggestion is we should get people who haven't been into the habit of writing um, to start writing because they don't have to unlearn uh, their own past, uh, as it were. Do you think there's scope for bringing in uh, further voices into the writing uh, of history, uh, perspectives that wouldn't normally be articulated?
4: Yeah, I think there's definitely a scope within the writing of history, but also in the teaching of history. And quite often, people will think that you have to be an academic historian to teach history to an audience, which is obviously not correct. And one of the discussions we were having recently at, in my department at York was um, who you could have speakers for Black History Month. And sometimes there's an expectation that you have to look to the academic workplace to find those speakers, and especially that's very difficult to do when less than 0.5% of that workforce is black and it's one thing I suggested was well we don't have to just look for historians quite often people will want the histories of activism or why don't you actually mm. speak to an activist themselves they will know a lot more than an academic historian will, because they have the knowledge and they also have the experience and I think that's something which we generally overlook as well, we will turn to professionals to give us the perspectives of other people when we have those people readily available to us and I think especially as a, I'm more of a modern historian looking at the 1970s and the 1980s, I have the privilege of knowing those, some of those people are still alive and I conduct oral history interviews with them and that is something which is incredibly important to my work because I can't learn that from my historians, I can learn that from them and get their angle on history. So that is something which I would really promote in connection to that question, oral histories in general, and also kind of linking back to Zabel, oral histories in the classroom. So when we would run school workshops um, with some of our schools in Leeds, for example, Rounday, and we were talking about the process of oral histories, how we use it to kind of learn different perspectives, which you couldn't get from a history book. And they were really interested in that concept. We went through the transcripts. And they were really interested to see the points which people brought up because it was a history which felt a bit more relatable to them, something they could identify with as opposed to learning about a distant king or queen. So I think oral histories are a really good way of kind of bringing in those other voices which you don't usually get in academia. Great,
0: right, thank you. And uh, uh, Christina, what, what scope is there for greater public engagement? um, for academic historians, Uh, I know there's a lot going on if you could perhaps describe how much, but also do you think there's scope for development there?
1: I think there's, there's definitely, there's definitely scope for development and, you know, in, in the same way that that Olivia was just talking about, I think, uh, Black British history in particular, uh, which is now, um, sort of moving into, uh, universities and it's becoming a little bit more institutionalized within universities, um, but, you know, there were really decades, and Olivia said this but I want to underline it, there were decades of, uh, of community historians doing Black British history uh, at, at a time when, when universities were, were, were not interested. Um, and so, I think one of the things to, you know to do uh, Black British his- history ethically um, in, in university settings, one of the things that is really required is to be in communication and in dialogue with local communities um, and with uh, with those uh, with those historians who have been doing doing that work, uh, and to not really get hung up in the uh, in the sort of uh, sort of academic, uh, you know, in, in what academics value. Um, so, for example, I am one of the conveners of the Institute uh, for Historical Research's uh, uh, new Black British History uh, seminar, uh, and we launched in January, and then very quickly got swept up uh, in industrial action and in in, in the pandemic. Um, but you know, we had a we part of our goal is really to bring into conversation uh, members of the community. Uh, activists, people who've been doing uh, various forms of history uh, outside of the academy uh, to basically bring all of us in conversation um, in, in, and really learn from each other rather than, you know, that, that particular model, the IHR model, tends to be academics talking to each other. Uh, and we've really pushed for a different, a different model uh, entirely uh, to, to really recognize where a lot of the energy has been uh, and to make clear that this is a collaborative uh, effort going forward. Um, I think there are probably a lot of other fields in, in uh, academic uh, research that could, that would really benefit from that kind of approach, um, but it, it seems very clear to me that that is the right way forward uh, for, for Black British history.
0: Thank you. Um, and now uh, moving, moving to Zyber, there's a question uh, I'd like to start with you from, uh, from uh, uh, one of our viewers. Uh, a key issue is the way in which language reinforces perspective. One person's rebellion is another's revolution. Or a reference to repression rather than massacre, for example. Um, how, how do you perceive all that? How do you manage it uh, in terms of the, uh, the school classroom uh, and the language of history?
3: So I think language is incredibly important. Um, I think so. I was lucky enough to get training from a group called Equality Teach. Um, and in that, they um, highlighted to us the importance of language and the vocabulary that we use, you know, things like us versus them and kind of sort of small things that you don't realize have an impact um, and so i think it's important that you empower teachers when you give them this kind of training so that they know the impact that language is having um, and i also think that a lot of that is about uh, pulling out uh, students voices as much as possible um, i think this idea that teachers have to be neutral and not use kind of uh have to be neutral is actually quite difficult to do um and quite dangerous i think what's more useful is if we all kind of are clear about our perspectives and we give lots of space for us to voice our opinions on difficult histories. I think that's more useful um, than trying to aim for some sort of neutral language Um, because I don't think neutrality is possible to be achieved and I think if somebody tells you that they're neutral that's probably not true. Um, There's always going to be a perspective that somebody has on a particular topic Um, and so I think it's important to highlight Pull out students' voices and give them the
0: vocabulary to talk about things in an open way. Thank you, Tristram, uh, I wonder whether you have any uh, comments as well on this issue of language, uh, because of course uh, in museums so much depends on the way that uh, objects and displays are presented to the viewer and the interpretation that, that's placed on them. Is, is that is that an issue also for museums, the language issue?
2: Yeah, I mean yes, yes, it is, and. Tell me if i go fuzzy again i'll drop the video um but i think Zaber's totally um right and 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 the point about teaching the, the history is to encourage a, a critical dialogue and critical reflection so for example we recently put on display some of the ethiopian collection at the vna which was taken by the british army in a, in a colonial raid in 1868 and when we put those items on display, and we're very transparent about the source of, the, of, of that collection, we wanted to make sure that we had voices from the time, but also contemporary voices from the Ethiopian Diaspora community, from the Ethiopian Embassy, and so you had a display where there were multiple voices in English and Aramaic and other uh, languages, Uh, all reflecting upon the collections the the controversial um, um, and ugly history of the collections and also you know what what we intend to do with them in the future I mean there's a big discourse that museums are not neutral and that's absolutely uh, right that every choice of a image every choice of a label um, bears within it my existing decisions and um, and approaches but we also have to find this, this this balance which is that in an era where populists can denounce everything as fake whether it's fake news, fake past, there is a role whether it's for history teachers in the classroom whether it's for academic institutions whether it's for museums also to retain some integrity within public debate that actually if you do want to know um, about the history of um, Oxford you are going to talk uh, to Zebra and her colleagues in the classroom if you do want to know about about the history um, of African-American struggle and other um, components taught by Christina there is um, knowledge and um, understanding built up through great scholarship over time and so we just have to balance it seems to me this this very clear understanding uh, about the, the the prejudices and uh, kind of pre-histories that people bring to academic and cultural institutions alongside the need for a liberal democracy to have these institutions but they have to ensure that all voices are heard and I think that's the area where we're, we're wrestling with at the moment that's certainly what I'm wrestling with at minute. In, in, in
0: thank you very much um, now one of our other questions and I'll, I'll, I'll keep with you uh, Tristram to start with uh, is uh, the uh, viewers interested to know what the panelists think about the removal of statues? Of course, that very uh, important uh, core drive in the protest movements. And, for example, the Edward Colston statue in Bristol. And interested in what you think about the way it was carried out by protesters. So, so Tristram.
2: Well, my view on um, uh, my view on Edward Colston is that um, that that statue should have should have come down earlier um and um that that statue um should have come down through in a sense political leadership and i think uh, marvin Rees is a great mayor of uh, bristol um and they had a you know he had a mandate in a, in, a, in a sense for um t- looking at some of the really challenging and ongoing as colleagues have said um racial um, tensions within Bristol and, and 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 this speaks to exactly Zayda's and Christina's and Olivia's point that these histories do not end with the Royal African Company in the 1800s the 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 consequences are alive today so having that stature in that public place my preference would have it would have for it to have come down earlier with uh, through you know the the, the democratic uh, process. But there's no no doubt that there is a you know historic justice and um very kind of e.p. thompson sort of way in which he was then dropped into the docks and one can all reflect um on that um i th- i think the fact they they've kind of i don't know whether i don't know the fact that they Kind of brought him back out of the docks, and are thinking what to do with him now is is their challenge. He, uh, he probably could have stayed in the docks for a little bit longer, I I think, before working out where he should go. Right, thank you, Christina.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would certainly agree that that one of the key points here, um, and I you know I think about this with with a lot of the, the statues that are being uh, pulled down or uh, or sort of reworked in certain ways, is actually that they should have come down uh, quite quite some time ago. Um, but I think actually this this brings us back to uh, something that, w- that we were discussing a little bit earlier about um, sort of the, the sort of citizens forums and, and ways of thinking about, uh, about what to do with statues. Uh, and, you know, I take uh, Tristan's point about uh, the importance of a democratic process. On the other hand, the people of Bristol who had wanted the statue down, and in particular the Black residents of Bristol who wanted the statue down, were not heard for a considerable period of time. And one of my concerns here is that, you know, when we talk about, um, sort of citizens debate, which, and I want to be clear, you know, I, I think citizens debate is very important, but some citizens are listened to more than others. Uh, and uh, Black people in this country are not always thought of as as citizens. They're not always thought of as people who have the right to engage in civic debate. Uh, and their voices, particularly on issues that, that matter significantly to them, uh, are not always listened to. And we see this with, with this statue where you know for a very long time, parts of Bristol decided that it was more important to have this person uh, this person still memorialized um, as a civic leader as opposed to listening to the very vocal uh, uh, members of the community uh, who did not want to keep walking past uh, this, this uh, reminder of, of slavery. So I think as we're thinking about this, this idea of community discussion, it's really important that we're also thinking about whose voices are we listening to and when.
0: Thank
4: you. Any any news from you, Olivia? Yeah, I think I agree that it should have been taken down a long time ago. And the fact that it was taken down the way it was just proves what happens when you continue to kind of ignore the voice of the people, really. And I think for me, it was really important to see that and see how it was carried out, that there were still people in this country who realised how offensive it was to celebrate a man who destroyed so many black lives and that destruction still has repercussions to this day, it sends out a clear message that achievement is not acceptable if it is at the expense of Black and Asian people. And having that statue right there to celebrate that man and his achievements was basically sending out that message. So the fact that it's been taken down in the way that it has kind of gave me a bit of hope that this, while some people are still celebrating this man and saying that he should be Should have a statue for him. There are still people out there who see how wrong this is to be celebrating a slave trader, regardless of what he's donated his money towards. He got that money from sacrificing black lives.
3: Yeah, I think I just want to echo what everybody else has said. I mean, in an ideal world, um, it wouldn't need to happen. But then again, an ideal world doesn't include systematic oppression um, and also kind of structural racism, does it? And so it has to happen. Um, and I think it's done a huge amount to educate people um, about the issue I think it's it's been a talking point it's been something that our students are discussing and it's given us things like getting students to rename school buildings you know really considering that issue of memorialising so I think it's been a really important development um, and something that has to happen.
0: Um, Staying with you uh, Zyba one of the the points that Tristan made earlier was that history Uh, deserves a much larger place in the curriculum that it is generally allotted. Uh, The subject is is so important. Uh, Something else that's been observed uh, during the the, the recent debates uh, has also been uh, what uh, some critics say is an excessive concentration on British history, when there should be much more global history and certainly not just Eurocentric uh, history. Uh, and that there should be studies of of Benin, not just of England and France and and so forth. Um, So I just wanted your views on whether we should shift our attention in that way. And in connection with that, uh, one of our questions is uh, whether you think that there should be scope to link with teachers and academics in the Caribbean, Africa and Asia, and also have students have conversations with each other across the globe, um, so that history is not simply about, as it were, we, but about everybody. Um, do you think of that?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think so, so Christine Council, who is a history education specialist. Um, she, I think she works at Cambridge University. She's amazing. She puts it really beautifully when she says that um, children should learn not that they are the centre of the world, but that they have a place in it. Uh, And I think that's a really useful way to think about um, how much we have in our curriculum. I think we need to have a balance of local history, of national history and of global history. I think it does huge damage to the authenticity of history as a discipline if we're only focusing on a particular national narrative. Um, I think it creates gaps in our students' knowledge. I mean, the fact that all of this is happening around them and they might not even know about the history of race, Um, In this country, they might not even know properly about the history of empire and slavery. Well, what is our history for if we're not equipping them um, To deal with these kinds of important conversations. I think it's incredibly important that we create this kind of Global wide lens of big perspective. Of course, it'd be great if we had more time um, But we've got to do what we can in the time that we have and I think we've got to pay attention to the fact that we need to have bigger perspectives bigger lenses that we're looking at I think this idea that a uh, kind of a curriculum that focuses solely on Britain is going to create um, some sort of shared national identity is inaccurate because it will always be critiqued by people who find themselves outside of the narrative, um, and we know this from from lots and lots of educational research that there is there are these feelings of alienation, of apathy of students of colour um, or of working class students that don't see themselves reflected in the curriculum. I mean, why would they want to carry on? learning about history and there's such a small number of, of black and minority ethnic students continue on taking history through A level and then up to degree level because they don't see themselves reflected in it and so I think it's important that we take into account all of these considerations in creating a history that truly speaks to our student students and is meaningful for them.
0: Thank you um, very much Sarah. Now, now moving to Christina again perhaps to, to pick up Uh, on on some of of your points, Zyber. Uh, uh, Zyber's mentioned identity, the issue uh, of uh, building an identity, recognising an identity, or the whole project of trying to generate an identity, being exclusive and making people feel they're not part uh, of of a nation. Uh, One of the debates about uh, the national curriculum a few years ago uh, was very much about whether uh, British history should be taught as our island story, um, it should be something which is inculcating a, a sense of British identity. And uh, a lot of critics have pointed out that British identity is fragile at the moment. That, that part of uh, one of the things fueling the debate is um, when people say who we are, they don't quite know what the, the answer is. How do we deal with identity issues uh, in history, Christina? I mean,
1: I think this is, this is a, 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 tricky, uh, a tricky one. Um, but what I would say is... Um, that part of, you know, part of my concern about, you know, using a history curriculum to create a particular sense of, of British I- identity uh, is both Zyba's concern about who is always sort of, you know, left out of, of, of that history uh, or left out of that uh, British identity, and then I think that then extends to who is also left out and what is left out of that um, of, of that history. So I think if, if you know, I've, I've had the, the opportunity to look at some of the uh, Key Stage three uh, British Empire uh, materials. Uh, and there's a real effort there um, in, in, in what gets focused on and what gets sort of uh, ducked around uh, to present a particular narrative of, of, of Britain uh, and, you know, by, by extension, a particular narrative of, uh, of British history. And that's one that is fairly uh, celebratory. And on the one hand, that's not that surprising, it's a national curriculum, it's a national history. On the other hand, and I think you know, uh, Olivia and, and zaiba have said this uh, throughout the conversation, it just does a disservice to uh, both, I think both to people of color in Britain and how, how communities of color have developed in this country, but also just does a, sur- a disservice uh, to, to white British people as well. Everybody deserves to know what their country did, what their country was a part of, and how their country, why their country looks the way it, it, it does now. And if those histories aren't accurate, if they're leaving out large chunks of the population, um, if there's no explanation for um, you know, why is British identity so fragile at this moment? Why is Britain so fragile at this moment? These are things that citizens need to be able to understand historically, uh, regardless of race, to understand their present moment. Uh, and this, if we're kind of ducking around the, you know, the, the framing here is difficult histories. But if we're kind of ducking around these difficult histories, uh, which I just sort of frame as the history uh, and all histories are, are, are difficult and uncomfortable, um, then we're not equipping uh, citizens to understand what has happened and why we're here at this, at this particular moment. And I think more so than creating an idea of identity, it is important to understand how we all got here at the, at, you know, in our contemporary moment.
0: Um, one, one question relating to that is how wide a range of voices do panelists think should be heard? To understand white supremacist movements, should we listen to activists from those movements? What would be your thoughts on that?
1: Um, this is again, a very, a very, tricky, uh, a very tricky issue. Um, you know, there are, there are people who, who do research on far right and white supremacist movements. Uh, and I think, you know, in, in terms of thinking about what the difficult histories are, I would actually say that these are the more difficult histories as opposed to the history of slavery or the history of colonialism. I, I, I personally uh, don't love the framing of difficult histories around, uh, around things that are uh, nationally uncomfortable. Um, but I do think we're, we're currently in a moment, particularly with social media, where ideas, particularly far-right ideas, are circulating uh, across, across national context very, very easily. Um, so I think there has to be a lot of care in terms of how, uh, how we are uh, working with and sharing, uh, sharing those ideas. On the other hand, I think without a lot of clarity about what actually white supremacists are arguing, their ideas can be quite seductive. Uh, they can just sort of pop up and, 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 you know, the far right and the alt-right is very good um, at, uh, at sort of seeding their ideas in this way that seems sort of commonsensical. And then suddenly you have you know, an alt-right movement that, that, that has you know, emerged across, across countries. So I think we can't hide from that, from that information. I think it does need to be handled very, uh, very carefully. In fact, I would say it needs to be handled more carefully uh, than some of, uh, of the other histories that we've discussed today. But it is critical that we actually know what is being argued um, by white supremacists so as to combat that uh, effectively.
0: How, how do museums approach these very tricky identity issues uh, how can it manage the tensions uh, in society
2: well it's it's got to be transparent about its own institutional history um, as a um, as a first step um, it's got to look to both the material experience and the curatorial knowledge um, and also I think this is the The move we're in at the moment also gives space to lived experience and 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 how that 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 works. The the challenge we face is that unlike in the classroom, we explore history through material culture and and through the object. And if you look at a collection like the VA or you know the Philadelphia Museum or lots of the Louvre, lots of global encyclopedic museums. That a lot of what we have is as a product of. Um, I'll get rid of the video. Uh, a, a lot of what we contain in the in the museum is a product of empire, and it's a product of the Mughal Empire. It's a product um, of multiple uh, African empires. It's because empire was for thousands of years the before the advent of the nation state, um, the natural form of government for millions of people. And necessarily as a result of that, you have a material culture which um, is produced by that. And so when we think about empire, we also, I think, have to understand that absolutely we should explore the history of the British Empire in all its manifestations, but also appreciate that empire for hundreds of years, for millions of people, was a normal form of governance. Um, and, and, and have an understanding of that history um, as well, and I think it 's just so interesting what Christina was saying about um, the the curriculum and obviously she comes from an, um, um, I, I presume from from America where the, the purpose of the curriculum is to create a unified identity from a melting pot in a sense of, of nationalities and identities. And in an era of globalization, and in an era where you have a a much greater array of identities, the role of education in teaching citizenship alongside critical faculties, and the two are not mutually exclusive, I think also presents a challenge for policymakers. And history is an enormously important part of that. But I go back to the original point, you can't do that with one hour a week. I just don't think you can do that with one hour a week. And I would strip out a lot of other components from, from the curriculum to, to, to give history more space. Thank you. And, and we're going
3: to
0: have time for one last question. And, and the background to this is that some of the uh, critics uh, of what has been uh, occurring in recent weeks have said that uh, it's, it's symbolic, um, uh, that the actions that have been taken have been dramatic. They might even be described as artistic. Um, but that they could be just ends in themselves and they won't lead to action. So, so that is the question um, from one of our viewers. Um, we've been talking today about conversations, uh, almost as if they're ending themselves. Is the end result of all these conversations to be improved understanding, uh, leading to properly informed and empowered action? What is that action going to be? What is the empowerment going to, to result in? Um, so are we chatting too much and acting too little, I suppose, would be one way of, of putting uh, a question. Um, Olivia?
4: Um, well, I think it's important to firstly know that these conversations are ongoing. So it's not like in, like, say, five years' time, we're so just going to turn around and say racism's over now. So it's a conversation which needs to be had over and over again and looking at how it changes within our society as our society is also changing. And yeah, there is also a lot, quite rightly, a lot of activists have been calling out what you'd may, maybe say fake allyship on Twitter, saying, okay, well, maybe put your money where your mouth is. And that's one way in which we can support other independent organisations with what they're doing. So, for example, with the Black Curriculum, with the Young Historians Project, which have been kind of arguing these points before. And quite often you can see support through maybe just investing money in those organizations and making sure that you do have the academic support there, especially within from universities, but they're not the ones who are guiding or leading the work. They're just helping to facilitate that. And I think that's really important. Uh, It's really important and that is still continued and that those groups are not just left out or washed out in a way where people just kind of take the work which they've been, they've been doing and just put it in an institution and say, okay, well, we as a university has now done that. And I think you've seen that quite a lot with quite a few of the students who were instrumental with leading the decolonising the curriculum in Why Is My Curriculum White movements. And you've kind of seen universities present themselves as, oh, well, we are the ones who did that. Well, it's the students who did that. And I think it's really important to remember that going forward and making sure that you still support those students who were really important in those initiatives.
0: Thank you. Um, Zyba?
4: Yeah, I agree. I
3: think conversation is a really important first step, um, but it's going to take a lot of kind of, we've got to carry on this momentum to enact real change. Um, and yeah, I think I just echo what Libya said there, that definitely kind of people, I mean, you can have lots and lots of conversations, but then not have any actions out. But the conversation is ongoing and we've got to make sure that we're actually uh, creating real change um, to make these conversations kind of worth it. But i think we have to carry on having them because things are constantly changing
0: thanks tristram
2: hi i th- i think it it has to be i mean for for an organisation like the vna and many other museums you you've got to have institutional change you've got to have you know what we've set up which is an anti-racism task force which is going to inform our strategic approach over the next five years it's going to shape how we develop for example our global fashion collections we've got a very eurocentric fashion collection uh, and over the next five years with the appointment of new colleagues we want to diversify um, our fashion collection and above all what we're doing at the V&A is building an entirely new museum in East London which is the youngest most diverse fastest growing community in the UK who find it difficult in a a sense to come to South Kensington to really reimagine what a museum can be and how it can speak to new generations with with very different approaches uh, to history and identity and, and to see how a museum can work for them in the future so it's It's kind of workforce change, it's collections change, it's programming change, but it's also a really exciting opportunity to think about the future of the museum in modern UK. Thank
0: you. And lastly with Christina, and also another slight spin on the the question when looking at action, is um, uh, there's some work um, by uh, David Reif on on the Balkans uh, where he has argued that there is an obsession with history. Um, which is really dangerous in that context. And he's argued that instead of a concentration on history, there should be forgetting. Um, That in order to move forward creatively and attain social justice, um, there there should be that um, uh, element of um, disavowal uh, of of the past. And uh, as as someone else put it, we need to build a monument to amnesia and then forget where we put it. Now, um, thinking about action, do you think there is a case for some forgetting, or I suspect not, but over to you to conclude
1: I mean as a historian uh you know by trade uh i, I, I can't quite uh support uh support uh that level of of amnesia uh, what I will say though is is um and you know i'm not I'm, I'm certainly not an expert on the Balkan case, so uh, don't view my comments as speaking to that um but you know we haven't really had any sort of um full accounting. Of of what happened, um, and or any sort of you know truth and reconciliation process, which you know the, the, those processes are are, are complex, um, but I think that that is a particularly dangerous approach without a full accounting of of, of what's happened. Um, and so uh, for me, and of course you know this is this is my profession, so to some extent I would I would say this, um, but I really do believe that that we um, you know, the, 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 the volume of surprise from people outside of Bristol about who Colston was, even, you know, even his name, um, and also you know, that, that whole sort of recovering uh, in, in public discourse, at least, of the idea that so many civic figures um, actually got their wealth uh, and became philanthropists through their involvement in the transatlantic slave trade, suggests to me that we're just not yet at a point where enough is known publicly to then move aside and move forward. Um, And maybe we get to some point where that's possible, but we're definitely not there yet.
0: Okay. Well, thank you very much. And and very warm uh, thanks to all all our panelists. We're going to have to uh, leave it there. And thank you to everybody who's joined us uh, today. Uh, I've also been asked to point out that, like all charities, Cumberland Lodge is facing difficult times during the current pandemic, as you might guess. And if you've enjoyed today's event and would like to support our work, We'd be very grateful if you'd consider making a small donation. Uh, You could do so online via our Just Giving page and we'll put up that link uh, immediately after this webinar. Now the next webinar in this series will be on policing in the community and will take place next Wednesday, 15th July, uh, also at 11am. This will explore the responses of Black, Asian and minority ethnic police officers to the Black Lives Matter protests and discuss police community collaboration. Our guest speakers will include Commander Alison Heydari from the Metropolitan Police, Leroy Logan, former Superintendent in the Metropolitan Police and Chair of Trustees at Voyage Youth, and Hashi Mohammed, barrister at number five chambers, also an author and broadcaster. And if you'd like to get alerts about forthcoming webinars, you can sign up on the Keep in Touch page of our website or simply email us at inquiries at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. And you can find out more about the work we do at Cumberland Lodge in general on our website, cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. So, uh, repeated thanks uh, to our panellists, to uh, Christina, Olivia, Tristram and Zyber. And now, goodbye, everybody.